Everyone, welcome back to, I think, hour number seven, I think we're at right now, of our 24-hour or so exploration into the outlook for climate in 2023. Probably there is no more important topic to discuss when looking at the outlook for next year in terms of capital flows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, than the, the Inflation Reduction Act, or broadly under the heading of today's call under US climate policy. We have lawyers and we have analysts, so I couldn't think of a better way to put this together. Arnie Grant is a, uh, is partner at Reed Smith in Chicago, and I said to Arnie before, the weather doesn't look too bad there at the moment, Arnie, in the background. And Ulysses Smith is a partner at Devois Plimpton and looks after their ES, ESG practice. Betty Zhang is stuck in traffic, and for those of you who don't know who Betty is, she is a research MD at Credit Suisse. And probably one of the few, and I would argue maybe the last ever investment banking analyst to have a report go viral, which was her look at the IRA. And when I say look, her incredible deep dive into the Inflation Reduction Act and all the economic consequences across broken down across, across a slew of sectors. Investment banking research sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap, gets a bit of a bad rap. This report is exceptional. And yeah, Betty and I were joking uh, that she's now probably one of the few investment banking analysts that anyone knows outside of outside of Wall Street because of this because of this report. So Betty's going to join us in just a, actually that I think Betty's timing is is exceptional. Just bear with me, everyone. We'll give her a, we'll give her a grand entrance. Sure, sure. Thank you for having me here. I have to say that the IRA is truly transformative. There are three things that we think may really makes IRA different from other global legislate climate legislations. The first thing is that it's incentive based, basically the carrot versus stick. Unlike Europe, where the actions is incentivized by avoidance of penalty, in the U.S. It is now about incentives, and it's incentive for everything, everywhere, and and for a very long period of time. And and which leads me to a second point: the long duration of these credits means that the impact of this is going to be felt for decades. So the credits are you can qualify for credits over a ten-year period, and there's another ten-year window of benefit. So in reality, you're talking about 20 years of benefits where companies can really see that visibility and not just corporates, but investors have that visibility to underwrite and use these credits to underwrite their project economics and, 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 and really understand and, and move forward the investments that's really needed. And then the third thing that really makes it unique is that it's technology agnostic. The fact that whether you're talking about clean electricity, clean hydrogen, clean fuels, it really doesn't matter what is the feedstock that's needed to, to make these fuels. Ultimately, it is everything is incentivized. And what that does is it really incentivizes not just the deployment of mature technologies like solar and wind, but innovation, climate innovation in the future. And that positions the U.S to lead on climate for a very long period of time. And you can create a uh, innovation hubs, climate innovation hubs that can uh, really make a difference come 2030 and beyond. So these are the really the, the three big things we think that makes IRA very different. And in terms of the sectors that we think are areas that, 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 that's truly transformed by the IRA, what I, I like to say that it's, it's really everything. But in particular, what we are 
seeing here, it's really hydrogen and carbon capture front. So carbon capture is your main benefit in all of this. Actually, let's take a step back. Talk talk big picture, the, the, the numbers. I think the number you came up with from your modelling was around a $1.7, $1.7 trillion investment narrative over a decade. Is that correct? Sure, sure, yes. So one of the key takeaways that are, are early a hot moments for us was that it was um, – two-thirds of the initial headline number, the $400 billion that everyone has initially heard about, two-thirds of that number is linked to tax credits that's un- uncapped. So nothing in the bill that says that the government has allocated X billion, do- billion dollars for these credits. Instead, it's about what is the tax credit, how do you qualify it, and how long does it, uh, and then what's the eligibility window. So, so as a result, when we look at the, that these tax credits and how attractive they are, they're really going to bring in more investments than what we think is being underwritten in the CBO estimates. And, and that's how we come up to a $800 of government spending for as a result of the IRA, which is around double the initial estimate. And when you, once you apply a public to private, private to public multiplier effect of one to one, at least one to one, you're talking about $1.7 trillion over 10 years, which is clearly a meaningful amount of money. And in order to really accelerate and move that forward, we need implementation guidance. We need more clarity around, around the, the the tax side of things, but this, which I'm sure we'll talk about that as well, and and then also just permitting and 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 removing some of the regulatory constraints. We really need to streamline the entire process in order to let the money flow. But on paper, the economics are really attractive for ma- many of these technologies. Right. Paul, one of one of the things we're seeing now. To, to follow along with, with what Betty is saying is, is some pushback from, from foreign governments because of the richness of, of these credits, and, and some of them are, are very U.S.-centric. For example, one of the credits that, that has been written about is, is the manufacturing tax credit. And in the past, in the renewable sector, all the credits have been based on, on using certain types of, of favored energy energy that it doesn't have emissions um, and, and getting tax credits based on, on use of these wind, solar, things like that, geothermal. Now you're getting credits based on manufacturing certain things in, in the U.S. And, and one of the big credits that has been written about is the, is, is the credit for manufacturing batteries. And it, 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 the credit is, is pretty rich. It's, it's $35 per kilowatt hour of rated capacity. Um, and that's going to make um, manufacturing batteries in the U.S. far more economic than it was. And, and I know Tesla's looking at that, and, and I imagine other companies are looking at that as well. Hmm. I do want to talk about the EU-U.S. relationship in, in part of this, but let's let's take a, a, a big step back, if you wouldn't mind. For the layman, the layman amongst uh, myself, I think of 45 Qs, 45 Xs, 30 Ns, there seems to be tax breaks and tax breaks on on a slew of different things. Walk us walk us through how some of the major tax breaks will work, and talk about the the scale of these things as you see them. Sure. In in my area, most of my work in the renewable sector deals with wind and solar, 
And in there, the, the main credits are section 45, which is the production tax credit, and section 48, which is the investment tax credit. And those credits have always been around for a, a short period of time. It, it, it's a brief duration, then they expire, then, they're, then they come back. There, there's not the level of certainty that, that is necessary to, to cause people to make huge investments. That's all changed. Now you have the existing credits, which are extended for a couple of years, and, and there you, the production tax credit, you, you, get a certain, you get a certain credit for um, use of, of wind, and now it's solar, didn't used to be solar, based on kilowatt hour produced and sold. So the, the, the plant get, gets the credit, and, and the investment tax credit is based on the cost of the renewable energy equipment that's generating the, 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 that's for solar and wind also, it used to only be for solar. Those credits continue for a couple of years, but then after those credits, you, you, get, you get technology neutral credits for, for production of wind, solar, and other types of renewable energy. And those credits are, are the, the credit period extends for 10 years for placing property in service. And then as Betty mentioned, once you place the property in service, if you're taking the production tax credit, that's a 10-year period. So if you place the property in service in five years, you get 10 years worth of credit after that. So it's extending for 15 years, much longer than we've had in the past. There are other credits that we haven't seen before. You get a manufacturing tax credit, which, which is for manufacturing renewable energy property in the US. There, there's another credit, the, the, the one point that Betty mentioned about Treasury not allocating specific dollar amounts to these things. The one exception to that is there's an advanced manufacturing credit and that advanced manufacturing credit would, and, and we had this several years ago, it went out and now it came back, where if you're building a plant in the US or if you're expanding an existing plant in the US, you can apply to the government for a, a 30% credit um, based on your cost of, of building or, man, or, or expanding the credit. And those can be real rich. There's a, a limit as to how much the government can, can allocate. So, so you want to get your applications in as soon as possible if you're doing these things. There's the, the, there's the, the, the carbon capture credit is, is, has been around a while. It, it, it's, it was about to expire. That's, that's already interrupt. That's the 45Q, isn't it? That's the 45Q, yep. It was about to expire. And, and now it's continuing on. I think it's still... December 31 of 32, I think it is. And it's, it's become much richer. In, in order to get the credit, you don't have to capture as much carbon as you used to. And once you capture the carbon, the credit is much richer than it used to be. One interesting thing that we didn't have before, that, that we now have, is the credits are now, most of the credits are now in a two-tier system where if you, it used to be that, that the credit amount was, was just the credit amount. Now the way it works is the, the credit amount is lower, but it increases to the existing credit amount. It, 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 you get only 20% of the credit unless you meet prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements that you didn't have right. to meet before. So you have to pay people who are constructing or expanding the plant, prevailing wages, in order to get the full credit. And you can get 
an increased credit of, of 10%, depending on where you locate the property, the, the, the plant, and another 10% if you meet certain domestic content requirements relating to um, manufactured components being in the U.S., being manufactured predominantly in the U.S., and steel being used in the U.S., so you can enhance the credits. These, these are additives, so you can enhance the credits by up to 20%. So, so, so there are more credits than there used to be. They are richer than they used to be, and they go for a longer period of time than they used to be. So, so it, it's a big deal. So, Ulysses, you think about this through a broader ESG lens. Talk a little bit about the conversations that you've had with your corporate clients in different sectors and what their levels of enthusiasm are about fast-tracking their own net zero pledges, et cetera. Sure. I do want to just flag for later, just so I don't forget it in, in the course of the conversation with Arnie. I, I, one point I wanted to clarify, which is whether the picking up on the, the Europe tensions, and we saw Macron in town over the weekend for a state dinner, and I know this was a big topic of discussion, I think, for the Biden administration with Macron's team. Is there anything precluding foreign companies from taking advantage of these tax credits and some of the benefits of it? Is it really about pre- precluding foreign companies? It's more about bringing manufacturing into the U.S., right? I mean, foreign companies building a battery factory in the U.S. would be able to uh, take advantage of these tax credits. Is that right? Or am I Absolutely. But they, okay. but they need to put the plants in the U.S. And in fact, there was an article in the paper this morning mentioning Tesla had been thinking about one in Germany, and now maybe they're thinking about one in the U.S. because of these credits. Yeah. Okay. I think that's maybe an important thing to keep in mind. And when you think about the level of concern from Europe, I think that's a point that's important. actually you know Ulysses. Let's 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 continue on this this topic. I think because I think it's a really important. And I do think, and Betty, I'd love your thoughts on this. But I I I think that the we the media the conventional media. Is getting this is getting this wrong. I think, and Betty, I think you summed it up really well. That you know, this under the new regime that we have in the pre, in the post IRA world, the US is a is a carrot model, and the EU is a sticks model. Now, the the talk when when President Macron arrived for his meetings with Biden was that there was going to be pushback against how about against the US using subsidies and the like. I cannot think how the conversations didn't go the opposite direction, as in now Macron has the ammunition to go back to Germany and go back to more conservative parts of Europe and say, we need to do our own version of this, right? What, Betty, what are your thoughts on, on that sort of thinking? And is the next shoe to fall in this rapidly accelerating government support for you know, sorry, government fast tracking of, of decarbonisation efforts is a an equivalent GDP per capita version of the IRA in Europe. Well, I think it's that's a bit uh, speculative for us to 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 talk about what the EU could do. It's you know what I what I tell what I, the way we think about it is just follow the money, right? Like. We don't know what the politicians are going to come up with and what are the plan that they could conceive for EU and how that really tags on to EU Green Deal that was passed almost a year or two ago now. But what we can follow, we can see the impact of this on the ground in the U.S. And we can see the impact of what, how companies are reacting to this. And we are already, and it's only been three months since 
passage of IRA, but we are already seeing solar manufacturing moving to the U.S. We're seeing NL uh, in companies that are moving or starting or planning to start manufacturing for the first time, solar manufacturing for the first time in the U.S. And and it's not just limited to solar manufacturing, but, but also batteries and supply chains, every single piece of the value chain. And it's not just a small piece, a part of the value chain, but the entire value chain is mobilizing from, from corporate investors. And it's getting accelerated because of the IRA. So if we follow um, what's happening on the ground, then, then one can see that, okay, IRA is having impact for the U.S. And, and in my view, it also makes it more difficult to take these incentives away several years down the road if, if for the U.S. But at the same time, it also provides more pressure for foreign governments to compete. And how they compete with that is yet to be seen. Can the EU provide similar incentives and as attractive incentives for, for the money to stay inside the continent? yet to be seen. But what we know is that things are moving and moving pretty rapidly, and, and it's making a difference already in the U.S. just in the first three months. Got it. Let's go back to that point about how corporates are thinking about this as part of an overall ESG strategy. But I think there's two there's two ways to think about it. One is the the potential for an infrastructure spending binge to go on 10 years plus, and, and as as we've alluded, you know, the first thing that popped in my head, if you've got tax credits that could go out as far as 20 years, that makes the, the raising of long-term debt for projects that much, that much simpler. Now, obviously, there's no guarantee, given the political constructs in the United States, that this will be around in its current form in 20 years' time. But the points, the, the points that Betty makes are incredibly compelling about the 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 the, the framework for developing a, a large-scale infrastructure spending program. So there's that element to it, but there's also the element of 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 ESG and net zero and all these sort of things. So when you're when you are having conversations with corporate clients about an all-encompassing ESG strategy, where does where does this fit into the mix? Yeah, well, I mean, as you said, at Devavoise, I helped lead the, the the broader kind of ESG work that we do. So I'm touching on sort of business human rights issues, diversity and inclusion, social issues, as well as sort of governance and anti-corruption and you name it. Climate is obviously a very big part of the work that we do, but 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 certainly, you know, clients that we're talking to are really looking at this in a in a fairly holistic way across the full spectrum of, of, of ESG issues. And I think when you look at the US uh, environment currently, I think it's a bit of a puzzle. If we were to go back and have this conversation about a year ago, there were lots of things happening in the broader kind of climate policy and ESG space that looked like we were moving into a bigger, brighter, more ambitious future around sustainability. And, and in ESG, you saw things like outside the US, Europe, and, and sort of the regulatory framework that, that was coming into focus there. We had COP COP26 really pushing things forward. There were anticipated developments coming out of the, the SEC in the US. And, and it just sort of the perception was a, a world sort of moving in a certain direction where climate policy was going to be more in sync and corporates were sort of on getting on the right side of, of these issues. Move forward a year later, 
And I think the picture is much more fragmented and much more complex on the broader ESG front. I think in the last year on the climate, there's certainly been lots of fantastic developments. I think the the IRA is obviously the the leading example of that. We also saw last week, I think, or the week before, the, the Department of Labor issued its new rules supporting consideration of climate and ESG factors in ERISA pension funds, um, which is quite a bit of, uh, of progress. We do have proposed rules from, from the SEC that we're kind of waiting for them to be finalized that, that largely sort of relate to corporate disclosures around sustainability and climate issues. There's a proposed rule from last March really focused on public companies, issuers, quite ambitious climate-related disclosure requirements. There, there were a couple of other rules in the spring from the SEC put out that that more directly affect investment funds and, and, and asset managers and the like. So there have been quite a few, I think, important strides that, that I think really sort of support and kind of crystallize where I think at a very high level, this country is headed. But at the same time, for example, we see at the state level, lots of counter pressures around ESG, and you, you're seeing really kind of a bifurcation at the state level landscape between states that for simplicity's sake, I'll refer to as kind of pro-ESG or pro-climate versus states that are more on the anti-ESG side. And so, um, for example, a state like Florida moving forward with, with a, a law that would prohibit consideration of ESG factors in state pension investment decisions, except doing so results in long-term value, which is an interesting little caveat that we can come back to if it's if it's worth dwelling on. You see Texas, for example, essentially creating a blacklist of, of companies and asset managers and funds that they that purport to boycott the oil and gas industry in pursuit of net zero and, and climate commitments. On the other hand, you have states like New York and California and Illinois and others that are kind of going in the complete opposite direction. So you have you have that happening at the state level. You have a lot of politics getting politicians sort of getting political ammunition in their fight against or speaking out against quote unquote woke capitalism. We heard some 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 talk from the Republican members of the House to open investigations of firms and their net zero commitments, their climate plans, references to things like climate cartels, for example. So and 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 indeed, I think there was a group of state attorneys general couple of months ago that have launched civil investigations of, of banks in their climate plans. So I think just from a, a big picture perspective, not focusing so much on the on the wonderful cookies that are sort of embedded and sprinkled throughout the, the IRA, which are, are really wonderful. And I think there's so much there that's going to drive real progress. I think from a corporate perspective, there's just a lot of mystery about where this is all, all going and, and frankly, legal risk. And so I think the kind of net effect is while you have um, amazing opportunities coming out of the IRA and elsewhere, there's a lot of pressure for corporates to the, the current phrases green hush or climate hush, where they're kind of lowering their ambitions. I think in some cases, putting on hold some of these trends really do empower, I think, the voices that are more skeptical around climate and ESG. And so there's there's some some movement towards pressing the pause button on moving forward with those commitments. In other cases, it is causing companies to move ahead, but but doing it in a much softer voiced way. One other sort of point to just throw out there is what we're seeing in kind of around the greenwashing sets of concerns. Now, the, the SEC proposed rules 
as with the European Union's sustainable finance disclosure regulations, and they they they, they just issued CSRD. Uh, a lot of this regulatory framework really is purportedly targeting greenwashing, really wanting to get accurate information out into the public domain so that investors can make informed decisions about what they're what they're investing in. And and greenwashing essentially kind of misleading or 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 dressing up sort of actual behavior, making it to look more climate friendly and and, and more green has really been a a, a a focus of of regulators. And that is true both in, in the case of the US at the SEC among the rulemaking side of the the brand of, of of the of the agency, as well as the examinations. So we're hearing from clients getting requests from the SEC, follow-up questions, letters, asking questions about their ESG or climate-related disclosures. But we've also started to see enforcement cases as well. And, and so, for example, the BNY Mellon settlement of a few months ago, where the allegation was essentially statements, disclosures related to the amount of, of investment decisions that were informed by ESG and climate considerations was, was actually, in fact, less than what it had been stated as in, in the disclosures. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. But I think just, just to kind of, I, I think I think there's so much to be really excited about. And I think Betty and, and, and Arnie really presented the IRA in, in, in that light. And I think it's there's there's so much to come and, and we'll have years of, of good work there. But I do think there's a very challenging set of near-term challenges for corporates as they're sort of navigating the next two or three or four years on the political side and, and also these sort of real countercurrents that are pushing back against developments on ESG and climate. I think we now have conclusive evidence that members of the Florida legislature do not own land in, in either South Beach or Naples, if they're <laughs> going to be embracing that sort of thinking. Arnie, talk a little bit about these cross-currents from a legal perspective, because again, if you go back, so we, we, we're looking forward into 2023, but if this was a look back at 2022, you had in one year in the United States, you had the defanging of the EPA, which has been a, a was a Nixon era, a Nixon era agency that did untold good for the United States environment for the United States environment. And then you have you've been able to pass arguably the most comprehensive climate investment strategy ex-China that the world has ever seen. It really was remarkable and 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 it it I think a lot of this is in and before everybody boos me, I'll, I'll let let me let me finish. I think a lot of this was due to President Trump in the sense that President Trump probably cost the Republicans the Senate with Georgia. And, uh, and I think had the Republicans controlled the Senate, the IRA would have looked a lot different. So I think Trump's failure can has a lot to do with the success that we have in this, this climate era. I, I, I think that with the I think that with the Republicans in control of the House, it, it's going to be hard to get something similar passed again. But I, I also don't think that, that things like um, what we see in, in the IRA are going to be repealed. I, 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 I'm, I'm old and I've been doing this a long time, and, and, and I don't recall the situation where a credit that was in the code came out of the code. Generally, these credits sunset, so, so they're good for a, a period of time, and, and, and sometimes they're, they're generally extended, not always, and it's possible that these things will sunset depending on, depending on who controls Congress or the White House at, at the time that, that the credit period is expiring. But that's a real long period of time before anything sunsets. So, so we have a, a lot of 
assuming nothing is repealed, which, which I don't expect based on the past, we, we have a, a long runway here. One point that I would like to make, because I, I heard Ulysses talking about corporates quite a bit, and, and I talk about corporates quite a bit, and, and the financing in this sector is all done by corporates. And, and there's a, te- a technical tax reason for that. You, you, you never see wealthy individuals and you never see family offices financing these projects. And the reason for that is the projects generate losses early on and wealthy individuals and family offices can't use these losses because of what's known as the passive loss rules under section 469 of the code. And these rules really serve as a barrier from, for, for investing in this field by um, wealthy individuals and family offices. So, so, so a big chunk of, of what could be available to finance these projects if the passive loss rules had an exception for, for, for renewable energy type projects is not available. And, and there was a bill in the House Oh boy, it was in the Obama administration to, 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 to amend the passive loss rules to allow individuals and, and family offices to invest in these things. And, and that bill went nowhere. I remember I talked with folks in the Obama administration in favor of that legislation and, and it, it just got lost in the sausage making and it, it's, it's never come back. So, so you're left with banks and, and corporations financing these things. Which, which right. Is, so, Adi, just, just, sorry, just to, just to clarify. So, if you, so that applies to individuals and LLCs that they, that, that pass through that, because that obviously with the LLC, there's a direct pass through and there's limits to right. that. So, therefore, the, the, of, of all the infrastructure spending program that Betty's alluded to, that's all going to be done through fund, through fund structures, C Corps and S Corps. It, it won't even be S Corps. It won't be S Corps. It'll be, it'll be C Corps. Most of the most of the financing is done by banks, and there's a handful of banks that are doing it. Maybe more banks are going to get into it, and you see some some large corporations doing it too. But but by far the majority of the financing, at least in the deals I see, is is done by banks, and it's probably a half a dozen banks that are that are doing it. And and pensions can pensions can they get a tax adva- a tax advantage out of this as well? No, no. There, there's a there's a there's a new provision in the in in the, in these in these credits. It's it's called direct pay, where you can get pay, you can get cash in lieu of taking credits. But that direct pay is is mostly limited to certain types of entities. The the entities are um, basically tax exempt entities, state and local governments. You might be able to get pension funds doing it that way through through direct pay. But but it's not individuals, not corporations. The, the one exception is that for a five-year period, entities that aren't known as these these applicable entities can get some of the can get direct pay with respect to some of the credits. They can get it on on um, the 45Q. They can get it on advanced manufacturing credit. And they can get it on hydrogen. But it's only those credits: carbon, hydrogen, and advanced manufacturing. Got it. Arnie, doesn't the transferability provision really changes the landscape for the need for tax equity investing or tax equity financing, because now any credit can can get transferred to other entities that are tax paying 
So it really reduces the discount that otherwise would have been perceived under that, tax that is, equity that, financing. That, that is true. Direct pay more broadly would have been better, but the transferability yeah, is sure. true because you, you, you can transfer credits to entities that can use them, but you still need to be able to use the credits to, 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 to get them. So, Betty, talk a little bit about direct air capture, and let's dive a little deeper into some of the nuance here. One of the one of the big pushbacks about carbon capture in the aggregate is the the, the fact that the cost curves don't make commercial. Then it's just not commercially viable. Whether that's direct air capture, whether that's biochar, any any really any technology in the in the in the carbon capture space is not economically viable and the dirty little secret amongst amongst industries globally is the world is littered with with failed carbon capture projects that just don't cover their that just don't cover their operating costs um talk a little bit about the declining cost curve for 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 direct air well carbon capture in the aggregate we're talking in some cases with the 45Q up to up to 50, up to $50 a, a ton of carbon. Is that right? Yeah. But Paul, if I may, before we're getting into carbon capture, I actually wanted to ask some comment on on back end, back end of Oasis a comment about sort of the, the the cross current that we're seeing within ESG. And I do think that on one side it, it's it's absolutely necessary to put more pressure on corporates to provide. We are talking about transparency. Everything is about transparency. There is transparency about corporates when they're making pledges that they are, these are genuine pledge with tangible strategy and business plan behind how you're going to get there. The problem with the status quo is, or before the pressure of the legal pressure has really risen about making climate pledges. Prior to that, it was anyone can say, hey, we're net zero by 2050 without any accountability of how you're getting there. And now that there is legal accountability that when you're making such pledge, you have to have a plan of getting there. And that's a good thing. That makes companies be more genuine and thoughtful about their transition strategy. And then on the other hand, there's the transparency around around defunds, like what what uh, the, uh, the, the issue with double materiality, like a lot of ESG funds is really focused on uh, risk mitigation. So using ESG ratings or third-party ratings to, to mitigate the ESG risk in the portfolio versus the customers on the, the, on the buying side think that they are really buying things that's having an impact or the, the other side of the materiality. That connection is unclear. And, and, the, the, and that's what's really creating this confusion or, and pressure on, on, uh, on ESG funds today that are really more focused on risk mitigation versus impact. And uh, mind you, you really need both. And then you just need to be very transparent about what type of fund, the, the, what's the fund strategy and how, how you be, be transparent about the investment selection process. All that being said, I do think that the narrative around ESG is coming at a time when the fundamental drivers for more sustainable activities are better than ever before. So in some ways, it is about doing ESG, or I don't really like to say it, but sustainable investing is about good return. Like now, because of the IRA, 
it's providing a incentive, economic incentive, to do the right or to do the more sustainable activities while still generating return. And then there is a massive first mover advantage for companies to do that. The first ones to do green ammonia or green hydrogen or green steel, all of these activities, there will be, there is clear market demand for a low carbon transition and, and low carbon products. And the companies that are going to engage first on these activities are best positioned. And thanks to the government, we have a lot of incentive to help, help them to make the business the business rationale as well. So I just wanted to put that aside on some of the things on, on the ESG front. But Actually, Betty, can I just, uh, I'll just ask a question of Ulysses sure. based, on, based on that? I mean, Ulysses, again, if we, if we look at some of, the, again, the big macro drivers, we had the defang of the EPA, we had the, this extraordinary program, which is called the Inflation Reduction Act, but we also had an unprecedented pushback against, against greenwashing, basically putting many companies in, into the green hushing realm where people are downplaying things. Amundi in the, in, the, in the UK, one of the biggest managers here, getting rid of all of its Article, six, sorry, Article 7 and Article 8 labelling. There's been a, an enormous pushback in this space, as in it's, I, I think, particularly in, in a niche area like voluntary carbon markets, it's really, it's really put that, that market on its, on, on its, on its heels because people want, don't want to be, many corporates don't want to be accused of greenwashing, which is targeting at an, at an unprecedented, for me, an unprecedented rate. Square that circle with all that, everything that Betty just said. I mean, is there going to be a hesitancy to actually to take up these, these programs because of fears of, 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 of greenwashing? I, I mean, I, I really couldn't agree more with everything that, that Betty said. I think she's really got it completely right. I mean, I, I think my my view of, of on, on the pushback is that it's a bit of sort of the ESG coming of age, kind of growing up sort of phase of of the evolution. And I think with increased transparency, sort of from from both perspectives, requires is is pushing the, the evolution. I think it's becoming more mature and when we kind of come out of this 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 pushback phase and I do think it is a phase I mean I don't know how long it's going to last it could last a year it could go through the next political cycle we'll see what happens in 2024 in the US politically but I do think for the reasons that Betty said the basic fundamentals are really what's driving this the politics happens sort of at this little surface area but but the fundamental reality is we have to decarbonize our economy one way or the other, whether that's through carbon capture, whether that's through reduction, if we want this planet to sort of continue to exist in a way that's that's livable economically, socially, um, we can't keep putting carbon up in the atmosphere. And that's just a fundamental fact. There's no getting around that. Whatever the politics says, that is really what's what what's kind of pushing this this forward. Yes, there's going to be a period of, of, of kind of, of green hushing, and there's going to be a lot of, speaking of squaring the circle, a lot of companies having to figure out how to both uh, be on the right side of, of the, the SFDR or the CSRD in Europe, while at the same time kind of being on the right side of, of the SEC rules when we have them, while at the same time sort of dealing with what sort of the state requirements are. And that's going to require some really nimble navigating that terrain. But I do think we'll end up on the other side of this in a better, more mature, 
more realistic way. I, I think, as Betty said, that the evolution has been a, from a place of G or climate sort of being in the realm of marketing departments or lofty sort of statements. I've been very involved for my entire career in the CSR movements, but but for a long time, it was completely fine for companies to say this, that, or the other without any real connection to to reality. This is forcing the greenwashing enforcement that you're that you're that you're mentioning, Paul, is I think really forcing companies to scrutinize, look carefully, what are we willing to commit to? What sort of strategy can we realistically carry out? And making sure that the, the disclosures, the public statements, the advertisements are real and anchored in reality and supported by by facts. So I think the pressures that are taking place are really kind of forcing us in a direction where where things are are quite good. One last thing I want to mention because Betty mentioned the the double materiality, and I I also agree with with her her thoughts there. One thing that I think is quite interesting, and, it, and in a way, it sort of parallels something that came up earlier in the discussion about the IRA. Europe has taken more of that double material double materiality sort of approach, looking at sort of risk issues and financial returns, but also generating social good. The U.S., it seems like what comes out of the SEC, we'll see. It's still, these are proposed rules. They're likely going to be challenged in court, you know, probably based on some of the arguments that won the day in the EPA case that you've mentioned a couple of times, Paul. So we'll see what the what the net outcome of that is. The SEC approach is not sort of that double materiality, and, and, and it really is focusing most on risk and, and and financial considerations. In fact, materiality, one of, one of the things I think the SEC has heard most about is is a seeming departure from its traditional kind of focus on materiality what's 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 relevant for the average investor i sort of see the possibility of two kind of basic sort of philosophical views about this the double materiality side that's sort of taking place in europe and this other thing that's happening in in the us and those two kind of competing together and 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 it'll be interesting to see which market which approach which philosophy has a better ability to attract capital in a similar way that I think what we see with the IRA and that approach versus what maybe will come out of Europe. I think these are good things to have different models, different approaches, different views, and, and sort of an experimentation happening. And we'll see in probably 10, 20 years from now, we'll we'll regroup in, in this forum and sort of see what, what the outcome of that kind of diverging and com- kind of competing approach will be. But I think it's it, it I think it has the potential to be really good for for the world and for the climate. Right. Betty, let's talk about get, get into a little a few of the niches. Um, cost uh, The cost curves for carbon capture. Sure. All right. And now I'm going to tie this into part of the other question that you made earlier on as well about the voluntary carbon markets. So let's think so. And then also the corporate pledge. So the only way for companies to reach net zero is to is to offset their residual emissions, or they either get to zero themselves, or they offset residual emissions with long, uh, with carbon removal credits, meaning that the credits that that permanently removes carbon from the atmosphere and and store and sequester it for for, for thousands of years. Those are the highest quality credits that are available. Uh, that, that, uh, that those are the highest quality credits that the companies should be buying to reach their net zero targets, except these credits are most of them are essentially non-existent. The only um, one of the high quality 
credits that meet that criteria is direct air capture credits, meaning it's the ones that are you suck it from the air and then you sequester long-term from from in underground, and that could be costing in the market five hundred, seven hundred dollar per ton using some of the the uh, that Stripe and Microsoft have paid in the past. And there are a variety other category as well, like biochar is also considered high high permanence carbon removal credits, but there are air capture is one that is is um, currently viewed being very scalable, albeit uh, costly at the moment. So the problem time altogether is that companies are claiming net zero or carbon neutral with low car- low quality carbon credits. And, and increasingly, they have to move from, one, they have to go high quality. So high quality applies to e- either avoidance, avoidance credits or carbon removal credits. And eventually, they have to move entire- entirely into carbon removal credits and then buy the ones that are permanent in terms of how long it's are removed from the atmosphere. So this is where um, Sarah Air Capture sort of fits in the puzzle that we need carbon removal as part of the solution to reach net zero. And even though they are costly today, we need to accelerate the technology in order so that the cost curve can come down. Now, a company like Occidental Petroleum that is developing one of the biggest direct air capture project in the world, that the first plant is going to be 500,000 500, ton per year, and then they're going to build 70 plants, I believe, by 2035. And, and their current cost is around cost 350 to 450 a ton per year, and and but the longer term goal is that cost is going to come down to uh, sub one hundred twenty five dollar per ton. Now, you in order to get there, you need to build more plants and 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 get to that nth plant capability so that you reach economy of scale and bring that cost down. But we absolutely need that cost to come down. And because one, carbon removal is part of the solution, and two, it also fits into the whole fuel uh, utilization as well. So if we think about the future for sustainable aviation fuels, we should be using CO2 from the atmosphere and then also green hydrogen or clean hydrogen in order to create a really a true circular economy as part of the solution. So that's just one part of carbon capture. IRA kind of helps in that respect, doesn't it? I mean, the, the credit for carbon capture from direct air, if it's stored in, in the geological area, is $180 per, per ton and $130 yep. otherwise, Absolutely. which is a lot richer than we had. Yeah, it, it went, it, more than triple. It was $50, and right. now our air capture with storage went from 50 to 180. If you utilize it, it's 130. Well, then it's 130, um, for right. Point source, yeah, for point source capture, it went from 50 to 85. 85, If you yeah. go, yeah, if you sequester it, and then 35 to 50 if you use it or utilize and, and that's it. Assuming and then, and you, that's assuming you, you meet the, the wage and apprenticeship requirements. 
Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and then for for even that 180, it's it's still not enough for that air capture early stage okay. that air capture development today. So clearly, you need you still need additional support. One of which being the volunteer carbon market uh, to layer in additional revenue to to in- incentivize continued development of of these early projects so that you can get the cost down. But eventually, at that end plan, it's a 180 is supposed to be able to cover the cost, but we're a long way from that right now. And I think that's a very good point. Betty, um, let's uh, sum, sum, sum us up, if you wouldn't mind. Well, thank you. Well, I think it's we're really at an interesting time where, where IRA is creating a environment for transformative changes in climate in the U.S. and not maybe not just in the U.S., but globally. And this um, pressures and anti-ESG sentiment that we're seeing from other, other parts are in the U.S. is not going to stop what's going to, it's not going to stop the investment and the enthusiasm around the IRA. So Watch and see, and there's a lot going to happen, and the next few years will be quite exciting. Perfect. Betty, again, thank you for the report. Thank you for, the, for your time today. I'm a big fan of what you do. It's it's great to have you. And Arnie and Ulysses, thank you very much. Everyone, join us. We have another nuclear panel on in about three minutes. And everyone, thanks for your time. Thanks, everybody. Great to be with thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.